A big welcome to Terra.2's Climate Podcast. Focusing on developing countries, we hope to cover a range of issues relating to climate change, development, sustainability, conservation, and many more. Today's guest is Professor Ryan Merrill. Ryan is a recent doctoral research fellow in sustainability, strategy, and innovation, and adjunct professor at Singapore Management University. He has spent 10 years in higher management and institutional finance, energy research, education, and consulting, and holds a PhD in environmental policy from the University of Southern California. Ryan is extremely passionate about the promise of mangrove forestry to lead the fight against climate change and is doing excellent work with his organization, the Global Mangrove Trust. I'm Keithi Manyan, and I'll be your host for today. Hi, Ryan. Big welcome to you. We are super excited to have you with us. I'm going to get started by asking you this. Can you tell us a little bit more about how your career reached this path? Okay, great. Thanks for having me on the podcast. I came to be Managing Director of Global Mangrove Trust out of academia. I completed a PhD in environmental policy a few years ago at University of California in Los Angeles, USC, and had the opportunity to embark on a two-year postdoc at uh, Singapore Management University with a team of professors led by Simon Schulbeeks, uh, who's an assistant professor of strategy there. So I got to spend two years based out of Singapore researching platform architectures for digital sustainability in the region, sort of a brief to look at the most cutting-edge confluences of technology and sustainability problems across the region, with a brief to write uh, case studies about what we found for SMU, the Singapore Management University, and for Harvard Business School. It's actually been an interesting pivot to opt instead to really take a full-time role as the MD of the nonprofit, go into what you might call sustainable entrepreneurship. Fabulous. And can you give us more details on the Global Mangrove Trust? What is your mission and what do you hope to achieve? Sure. And to our listeners, i Got to invite everybody to take a look at the website or follow us on social media because a lot of the details of what we're trying to accomplish at GMT are laid out on our online presence and also in a green paper, which you can share with, with you, Kirti, and is also available through those avenues. But in essence, GMT has set itself to the task of pioneering the world's most efficient peer-to-peer blockchain platform for funding blue carbon forestry and for funding regenerative forestry in general, with a mission to empower families and businesses to protect our future uh, through funding mangrove forestry and through regenerative land use. So as an organization, we are setting ourselves to the task of connecting a global donor base of households and companies around the world who want an opportunity to engage in direct climate action but maybe lack the tools in their local environment to have an efficient effect on the climate system. The realization that sat under Global Mangrove Trust was the efficiency of mangrove forests as sort of natural technologies for carbon storage. In uh, learning about the biology of mangrove trees, the ecology of mangrove forests, and the efficiency with which this particular species of plant store carbon in the trees and in their root structure is about, say, five times trees in the rainforest and 10 times 
the carbon storage rates of trees in the sort of upland temperate forest that we're used to. So that was a big eye-opener for us and sort of grasping, wow, mangroves are amazing. And then we very quickly realized, wow, mangroves are really, really hard to fund because they live <laughs> on the edges of societies. Right. And that's the essence of it. It was sort of like we've got this amazing opportunity to use these forests to make a difference, and yet the funding challenge is really profound. And that was what we set out to solve at GMT, to say, well, how can we make uh, tools that are scalable, are efficient, and are transparent, and align incentives for long-term husbandry that can allow a global community to support uh, mangrove reforestation at scale? Wow, it sounds extremely challenging. But I happen to read that your organization was recently selected as a finalist in the lab's annual competition 2020. For those of you who don't know, the lab is a global innovation lab for climate finance. And it holds an annual competition where they select the top eight ideas to action on climate change in developing countries. Can you give us more details on what your winning idea was and how it works? Sure. Being selected by the lab to work with the lab for this next year and beyond has been a real honor for us. And we're very excited with the prospects of, of working with the lab community. We were selected as the leading idea for India, where a lot of our design, development, and deployment operations are based. We see ourselves as a regional organization and very much focused geographically in our early stages on driving mangrove reforestation in the Bay of Bengal from Andhra Pradesh to West Bengal to Bangladesh and to the coastal regions of Myanmar. So we articulated for the lab two essential ideas, the first being the peer-to-peer -peer blockchain funding platform called Grove for Global Reforestation Objective Vermont Ecosystem, which is our crowdfunding platform for funding mangrove projects. And so we explained to the lab that uh, Grove had a, a set of characteristics that make it unique in the world and potentially quite game-changing in terms of providing coastal communities an ability to access a global donor base without the very, very high fixed costs of traditional carbon markets and other development organization workflows, if you will. So that, that was the first sort of thing we articulated to them. So we were, we're building this and we're really excited about it. And in the process of explaining that, we focused our application on a second idea, which is also in development for something called a forest smart ledger. So it's a challenge, but not unsurmountable challenge to help communities articulate what they're doing and ask the world to crowdfund them. It's not really groundbreaking to create a new crowdfunding platform for cool coastal projects or to devise a way to use a mirrored ledger and a blockchain and a series of smart contracts to make that scalable and efficient and transparent. But in and of itself, Grove alone doesn't solve a long-term problem for verification and measurement. And what we articulated in the Forestry Smart Ledger system was a build uh, in three stages that essentially constructs a forest oracle, an AI machine learning computer vision software platform that takes uh, satellite data for geofenced pieces of territory, forests, 
and using near-infrared vision mapping predicts changes in biomass and thereby enables that system to sort of say this area is reforesting very quickly and you've got great performance and this forest here is maybe not reforesting very quickly or in fact in the worst cases this territory might even be going backwards and we're still seeing deforestations we're seeing losses and from those metrics be able to do calculations within a confidence interval the amount of carbon that's being stored in that landscape and by extension in, in other uses that we were intending and we articulated to the lab, being able to overlay that with species maps for endangered habitats so that we can also say you're contributing to expanding and improving habitat opportunities for these sets of, of animals and flora and fauna. So, so to be able to do the measurement of hopefully growing forests and then to communicate that to a library platform that enables people all around the world, including the Grove, to access that data and to put through requests to engage with that data in a useful way. And then the third element to take that data and keep it stored and updated via smart contracts on a distributed ledger, on a public ledger, through a blockchain architecture. So we call it a land ledger because it, it has that component of being able to track land under management all around the world, initially mangrove land, but we really hope that with uh, adequate calibration that the system will be able to be applied to peatland conservation, tropical rainforest conservation, maybe even to temperate timber, with the idea that if you can track pieces of land on a public ledger, use smart contracts to maintain that database at a very low cost, a very high efficiency way, and link that to a, a forest oracle so that you can accurately assess change, that you have all the superstructure to be able to employ some artificial intelligence and some, some machine learning to drive benefit sharing. So at the, at the foundation of the FSL, the idea is that by solving those problems of perception, quantification, access to data, that you're building a public good that can enable organizations all around the world to deploy benefit-sharing contracts across the distributed ledger and provide communities who are husbanding that land or caring for that, uh, those territories with a long-term stake, long-term cash flows that are tied to the effective husbandry of that land. It is a little bit of a big vision, but it looks simple schematically. And I think the lab was attracted to the idea that we were excited to make a public good. And we were excited to be making a public good that, if calibrated for mangroves, could then be recalibrated to lots of other uh, land use conditions. And that, at its foundation, was purposed to the idea of enabling benefit sharing. You know, so the whole project sounds like you said, extremely complex. I mean, you're hitting so many themes in that sense. You're also kind of breaking boundaries. You're talking about looking at Myanmar, you're talking about looking at Bangladesh, you're talking about looking at the Bay of Bengal and, and the Sundarbans, for instance, as an example. So when you talk about breaking borders and boundaries, where does politics and policy play a role then? Because 
I would assume that there is some element of all these countries' policies or kind of feeding into this. How do you expect to navigate that and how is your project framed against this background? It's a great question. There's no simple answer. It's maybe important, and since for a lot of the listeners, this is the first time they've ever heard of this project, and they're thinking, good God, what the heck's going on? You know, again, it's important to see what we're doing as a platform that connects two populations. So before you can ask, what does the context, what does the policy or the regulatory context mean for this platform? It's important to distinguish where the platform sits between these communities. So globally, we have people who want to engage in climate action. So the first sort of regulatory space is governing the ability of people all around the world to send money to a platform to then have that money sent on to a coastal community in a foreign country. So we face regulations around any money laundering and know your client and all this traditional sort of regulatory overlay that lots of people working in the digital space are engaging today. And it is dynamic and it's not as awful as it sounds in the beginning. And we're starting to realize it's more than navigable. We've had a lot of positive connections with companies in this space who have looked at a program like ours and said, that's cool, we'll help you. And so it's been nice to find allies for navigating the regulatory environment on what we might think of as the buy side. And then on the sell side of our platform, you know, we're talking about you know, moving money to very low-income coastal communities around the region in different states and different countries. And each one of those communities faces a different regime. So there are places in India where there are five successive layers of bureaucracy governing legitimate land use and land use changes. There are other territories in India, for example, where that's not the case, where you have basically one regulatory authority who might look very favorably on the idea of a stronger green shield for a territory, and you get very quick sign-off and very strong levels of, of state commitment to regenerative land use. In Myanmar, for example, there's been a, a huge sea change in the way both coastal communities and the state look at mangrove forests. So there's been a big shift in thinking of these forests rather than as sort of wasteland that can be profitably cleared to produce coastal resorts and shrimp farms. That communities, since probably Hurricane Nargis in 2007, Communities and the state have come to see that mangroves provide really important ecosystem services in protecting coastal communities from seaborne threats, king tides and floods and hurricanes and typhoons that bring a very real threat of inundating rice fields with seawater, destroying people's crops, not just their homes, but also their livelihood and their food supply. So the communities in the Bay of Bengal, I imagine that in a lot of territories in Bangladesh, this is very similar. The people want to restore their mangrove forests, and the government wants to see them restored as well. What is challenging is that those communities are also oftentimes very impoverished, and they oftentimes have very weak land rights. So there's various levels of complication in achieving like a 30-year land lease from the forestry department to engage in reforestation projects. What we do in the platform is provide a flexible but robust set of tools for communities to communicate 
those land rights to make that documentation available to a global donor base and in the process to make it clear to their regulator this is how we can show what you've given us right you've allowed us to articulate our land right in this way and now you can see what it looks like on a global platform and you can see what it looks like next to the land rights that have been granted to another community maybe in an adjoining state and so we're hoping that with time the provision of those tools in a transparent environment will help communities that are struggling with a regulator nudge the state to be more forthcoming you mentioned mangroves as a green shield and i certainly feel that's an adequate and adequate incorrect word the appropriate way to call them but they play such a key role against storm surges and the like then why then do you think are they ignored or erased altogether when we speak of climate action we struggle as a species to pay adequate attention to black swan events we tend to think it could be really really bad but the probability is low so let's operate on the assumption that it's not going to happen and so what do you get you get coastal communities that look at a coastal forest and say all right this forest provides us with really really important ecosystem services we think we're not entirely sure what those are they're sometimes hard to measure and we wouldn't be surprised if some of those benefits were flowing to people outside of our community but we're keen on keeping that around that's sort of your best case scenario even in those best case scenarios there are going to be opportunistic actors in that space who can recognize that irrespective of the community i can achieve a private gain by appropriating a piece of that commons i can cut down some wood out of that forest i can sell it for charcoal i can make money or i can carve out a piece of land there i can strip it and i can drain it and then i can build something or strip it drain it and sell it for someone else to build something and if i can get a land right for that i can extract a private gain from transforming that piece of living commons into a significantly less living private asset so that's a big problem and it's driving deforestation in southeast asia with the highest deforestation rate for mangrove forest loss in the world so the scientific community has looked at the ecosystem services of a hectare of mangroves and valued it around like 93 94000 US per annum in ecosystem services they're the they're a life blood the living lattice on which the whole food web depends something like you know it's some very very high disproportion i want to say 60% of game species of fish globally as babies start in mangrove forests wow right your aquaculture it's all starting in these coastal mangrove forests so when people cut them down their whole food webs begins to collapse so the fishing community really rely on mangrove forests but that connection is not super evident so one of the things that we've seen is really successful in the mangrove community all over the world and they've come from a very difficult baseline is is educating communities about the role of the forests as the foundation for the ecosystem and it is a compelling narrative for people to appreciate how much they should value them as a community unfortunately it still doesn't solve this very key problem of deriving revenue from the forest now so what we've sought to do is definitely build in components 
And as we grow, we want to fortify those components for doing that sort of frontline education. Though in the end, I think other groups like Mangrove Action Alliance or the Mangrove Action Project are just as equipped or, or better equipped to provide really, really high quality learning tools. Like Worldview International Foundation's work in Myanmar is a great example of this. Fauna Shakti Research Organization in Mumbai. You know, these groups have long track records for communicating the value of mangroves to coastal communities and been very successful in changing people's attitudes. Where these projects have, have struggled is in providing consistent long-term cash flows to communities who are protecting mangrove forests. And that's what we see our role. In talking about community action, and you've talked about conservation awards for community stewardship of the forest. So what's the expectation once these awards are given? So we challenged ourselves from the very beginning of the design phase. You know, how can we devise a system that gives communities a roadmap that allows them to believe that they're going to be supported for husbanding a growing forest for a generation? So we devised a working prototype of a 25-year conservation endowment. The idea being that when we fund a, a parcel of land for reforestation, we're also funding a 25-year endowment that will all be paid out in its entirety to that community, but over 25 years in increasing payments with the growth of the forest. You're making it a long-term payment schedule because that's the way that communities are thinking. And it also, the 25 years maps to the carbon storage profile of a mangrove forest. Mangroves store a lot of carbon about their seventh year of life and their 17th year of life. It's accelerating, accelerating, their roots are swelling, and then it starts to slow down. They're still adding big carbon stocks, and then it's leveling off at around 25 years of life that the tree has essentially reached steady state. Its root mass is intact, its canopy is intact, it's a mature forest. So it, it's no longer adding or subtracting carbon from the atmosphere, it's basically done its job. And that could be between 500 to 1,000 kilograms of CO2 that is sequestered, that one tree, over that period. So we wanted to map to that so that we could show like support for that whole trajectory and we want those payments to increase because as that tree is growing, so too is its market value. One of the major drivers of deforestation is charcoal markets. People cut down mangroves, bake them as charcoal to sell as luxury fuel stocks. And the value of those trees is increasing with their age. So we want to provide it over time. And we want to have those payments increase. And we want those payments to be tied to performance based on satellite assessments of growth. And we want all of that calculation to be transparent. We want it to be abundantly available information for the communities themselves. So they know exactly how much money they should be anticipating based on the performance of the forest for a couple of reasons. One, so that they just have a vested interest in, in fighting off poachers and caring for the forest themselves. Absolutely but also so that they have a feeling of endowment. The idea is that by giving this contract to a community that says, you care for this forest and we'll keep the money coming, even if that amount of money doesn't turn out to be such a, an enormous amount 
even if it's really quite modest, because that's what an international donor market is prepared to endow. <laughs> it might be quite small, but as long as it's something and it's growing, even if it starts from a very small base, a community is going to remember that. They're going to recognize that. They're going to say, you know, even if it's tiny, we don't want to lose that. And then I'll leave you with this last thought on this is that we directly marry that with Grove with a social connection. So the idea is that not only are we providing these communities with a fiscal reward, but you're also creating a social compact through a social connection between the global donor base and the villages so that they can actually have a relationship through time with the people who have supported that village. And we hope that we'll see that the combination of even a modest but enduring and increasing performance payment tied with a sort of a social connection that crosses global boundaries, that we can really fundamentally alter the calculus of the majority of these folks living on the coast to increase the degree to which not only they value mangrove forests, but the degree to which they're willing to go to the mat to protect them. Do you think technology is the way forward, or is it community, or is it a balance of both? It is a question of and rather than or. I think of the keyword being synergy. If you can take some of those sort of community problems and community solutions and let them guide some of your technology design, then you can get some nice synergies. So in the Grove, we've just sought to create simple tools that allow communities to define their projects as opposed to define their communities. The digital technology is fundamentally enabling everything that we do. Without it, we wouldn't have been able to begun our work. So we talked about politics, we talked about policy. What other kind of challenges do you think you're likely to face to make your project successful? And how do you plan to overcome them? My co-founder and I are both academics, though now I've left academia to work on this full-time, and he continues working full-time. But there's a tension because we've really set ourselves out as a mission-driven NGO to create public goods, goods that solve coordination problems across transnational boundaries for global common good. And yet we don't have government tax bases supporting us. So obviously, as with everybody else in the NGO space, we're funding on a shoestring. No one earns a salary. We're building a system that gives its revenue to poor people in the environment. And a philanthropic business case, yeah, it's, it's a hard slog. You need people to believe in you. So I'd say oftentimes the challenge for an organization like ours who maybe has a groundbreaking idea and has the right intention is achieving ready access to sort of C-suite leadership decision makers in different contexts. So what I've noticed is that there definitely is a challenge for being able to reach the right audiences to be able to reach decision makers and people with vision, sort of visionary projects and say that is a really, really interesting attempt at a very hard problem. We want to help you with that. And we've been really lucky in making a lot of those connections very quickly. Singapore is a really interesting place to start because it's a very small community and it's there's a density that I think plays into our favor from being founded out of the university. And now as we are you know, preparing 
to go live with a prototype and start doing uh, funding work around the region, I think we're going to very quickly run up against challenges of making easy connections with decision makers across jurisdictions. So there's challenges of funding, there's challenges of staffing and orchestrating a transnational team. The technical challenges are exciting. I wish I had a bigger budget and more engineers so I could move faster. Yep. Obviously, attention, because now the global attention is so focused on fighting this virus that I think that will really deviate an enormous amount of creative problem solving. That is probably a good thing. I would say we'll see with the efficiency with which society can engage this problem and not over much to the detriment of others. So those are the big ones. I really do hope you overcome all the challenges that you guys are going to face. I mean, your project sounds extraordinary. So in relation to this, what do you think of the whole climate change narrative that is happening right now? And do you think more needs to be done on this? What's interesting about climate change is in the scientific community, there's very little in the way of uh, narratives. There's more like a, a pretty much an established canon of, of scientific understanding. So what's interesting is the, the translation of scientific knowledge into public discourse has become so much more variegated just in the last, say, 15 years. And a lot of that comes by the concerted effort of the fossil fuel sector to prevent this boogeyman of carbon taxes. And I, I think a lot of folks in the, in the fossil fuel sector feel pretty bad because they really let a genie out of a bottle by pushing so hard against the science for so long. So when we look at the science, we see a rapidly warming planet and a rapidly destabilizing ice sheets with historical proof that the seas can be many meters higher than they are now in a very short period of time whenever the planetary system crosses a couple of tipping points and we are driving past them. So maybe more climate scientists should have immolated themselves on the steps of the halls of, of power. I don't know how they could be more forthright in saying the problem is there. Yeah. Do we need more? I would say in terms of the energy transition, it's already happening. We need to remove uh, fossil fuel subsidies. That is, I'd say, the last cancer in the system that the market can't take care of. And that's just political corruption. It just has to be engaged and removed like a tumor state by state so that fossil fuel and solar energy and geothermal and everything else can compete on a level playing field. And then we need the green lungs. So reforestation, whereas it's not a panacea, it is a powerful tool at scale the work that's been done in just in China in the last 10 years shows that mass scale reforestation is completely within our reach. It can be done. It should be done. And interestingly, mangroves are a really efficient way to translate reforestation into high quality carbon storage and a really good justice dividend because you're protecting the most vulnerable communities from the threats of the very near future. So you just said it, my next question, you already answered it. You said we're driving past a tipping point. So do you think we've already passed it? 
the easy question is yes, right? I mean, you're rolling down a hill. There are speed bumps all the way down the hill. But at the bottom, yeah, you're going to fall into the sea. That's my like rolling down the San Francisco hillside metaphor. We're passing lots of tipping points. We're crashing over them. Yeah, for sure. I mean, when you look at these pyroclasts in Siberia, I mean, the, the methane building up under the permafrost is literally blowing giant holes out of the ground. I shudder to think of the next season of Greenland melting and then the season of Antarctic melting after that because we're going to see some really catastrophic levels of ice loss in just in the next, next year, just like we did last year. This year, we won't pay as much attention because we're going to be looking to, to our parents and to our kids and trying to keep safe. Any last words for our listeners? Oh, I had something prepared. I was going to ask for help. We were a small team. We we're growing. But the opportunity to connect with this community is really exciting. It's a fascinating year for us because we're working with teams all over the world. Uh, well, not all over the world, but in India and California and on the East Coast and here in Singapore. And we want to be building more and faster, which means we're short project managers, we're short volunteers, we're short engineer coding. So if we're looking for grants, we're looking for help, we're looking for guidance, we're looking for friends. And, you know, they say like uh, any organization is just the sum of the people involved. So we are looking for allies. And I hope that some of the population who might listen to this this evening said, Get in touch. It'd be wonderful to connect. Thank you so much, Ryan. I've had a exciting time listening to your project. It sounds amazing. It, it really does. It sounds so complex. And to someone who's not so knowledgeable about it, even then, I mean, I can see the kind of groundbreaking work you're attempting to achieve. So that's really, really great. It's just begun. It's very early days, but I think that there might be something to the vision. And in the end, it's peer-to-peer climate impact. It's trying to connect people and make it as direct, as seamless, as personal, as transparent, and as efficient, as scalable as possible. And that means digital tech, means disrupting incumbent systems, means creating new solutions for trust. And we really hope that our work will translate into millions and billions of baby trees that will grow to be big, beautiful green shields and green lungs. Well, I really hope so too. Thank you so much.